The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Built for Glory, Meeting God and Finding Freedom Through the Book of Exodus. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from the book of Exodus, chapter 7. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you saying, let my people go that they must serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood, and there shall be blood throughout the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt, but the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after, Lord, after the Lord had struck the Nile. This is the word of the Lord. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 7. We're going to have kind of a long introduction before we actually get into uh, the verse-by-verse expository sermon this morning. Uh, I believe your worldview is probably going to be challenged this morning. Um, Now, if you say, what is my worldview? Your worldview is your particular philosophy of life, your conception of the world and of the meaning of life. Now, I get it, most of us don't realize we have one. We just recognize that ours is right and wish everybody else is lined up with ours. But we all do. And our worldview is largely determined by the culture that we have been born into. Uh, but it's also influenced by, and you know what, not just the, when I say culture, I do mean the country, okay? But I also mean the state. And I also mean the neighborhood, and I also mean the socioeconomic climate of that neighborhood and of your family. I also mean the culture of your home, right? All of those things shape the way you see the world. Now, you don't recognize that until you've you've probably gotten a little older and you can look back 
And you probably, maybe you went to college and you got around some people from different cultures and different backgrounds and you realized they experienced life a little different than you did or you went on a missions trip and then your eyes kind of open up and you can see how particular your worldview is. Our worldview is our unique perspective on the world and the meaning of life. Now, why do you care and why do I think that your worldview is going to be challenged this morning? Well, because if your worldview is predominantly shaped by our Western culture, then more than likely you hold some things to be true. You maybe believe some things deep down in your gut that are actually contradictory. You don't even know it. So this kind of creates like a deep you know, deeply conflicted feelings in our heart. And one of those areas that I'm going to talk about this morning is what, you know, science and philosophy kind of calls naturalism. Now, philosopher Paul Draper defines naturalism as this, the hypothesis that the natural world is a closed system in the sense that nothing that is not part of the natural world affects it. So more simply, it's the denial of the existence of supernatural causes. And I think many of us in our culture have been deeply affected and influenced by this philosophy, and we might not even recognize it. We are told, since we're little kids, we're told that science has all the answers, that everything that is real can be empirically proven. Prove it otherwise right? There's no supernatural world. Miracles don't happen. When we see something that we think is a miracle, all it is 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 science just doesn't have the answer yet. Science could prove it if we had all the answers, but we just don't have the answers yet. Miracles don't actually happen. And the worldview that kind of, and the way that that kind of fleshes itself in our life is don't expect God to do anything for you. You better do it for yourself. And even like God helps those who help themselves kind of philosophy, like just do it yourself, don't expect God. But then, so we kind of bought, we buy into this in so many different ways, but then the unique thing is, and the confliction happens, then we, we, we kind of think that everything has a natural cause, but then we also pray. Almost all of us. I have read about and heard about atheists who still pray. Everything, you know, for them, like to believe in God and yet to attempt to speak to him reveals a person who is deeply convicted. The kind of, the the philosophy underneath that is kind of like God is dead and, and yet I miss him. See, no matter how much science tells us about our world, science cannot reach beyond our world. The supernatural world does not deal in empirical evidence. And hear me, I am not saying to be suspicious of science. I'm not saying to distrust science. I'm saying by definition, science cannot tell you something that something outside of this world exists or doesn't exist for that matter. It can't do it by definition. So we kind of have this, we, we kind of buy into sometimes this this naturalistic worldview where we think everything has a natural cause and the supernatural is kind of fairy tales and and, and myths, but it doesn't really happen. But then we still pray. Almost all of us, when when the towers fell on 9-11, no matter what worldview you, you came from, what was the president saying? The president was saying, pray. What were we doing? Houses of worship were flooded, right? We sense that there's something greater than the natural out there. Not only that, but I just speak of myths and fairy tales. Why are we so fascinated by the supernatural? We're taught that they don't exist, but how many of our movies are based on the natural, right? All of our movies, from superhero movies to vampire movies, right? To ghost, like right now, right? Ghost stories, people are like hanging things on their porch, right? They're hanging spirits on their porch and things. Like, right? Why? We're fascinated by it. We're, we're drawn to it. We're pulled to it. But we, we, were, we were taught nothing like that exists. It's all fairy tales. But every society, every culture in history has had ghouls, has had demons, has had monsters. Everyone. Why is that? Well, I think there's something in our world that is God-haunted. 
The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 1 that this is what he says, for what can be known about God is plain to them, plain to human beings, because God has shown it to them. Now, when has God ever shown us what's plain you know, about God? When has God ever done that? This is what he says. For his invisible attributes, invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that he has made so that everyone is without excuse. So what Paul is saying is God created the world in such a way that his presence haunts it. Every sunset is haunted by a creator who painted it, right? Every intricate animal was created by a creator, right? It's haunted by, so there's a way to look at creation and to view creation and to see the world that we live in that brings us back into the, into, you know, at least intellectual contact with a creator. It's haunted. Paul is saying that creation itself testifies to the existence of a creator. See, our world rejects this naturalistic understanding. It's not a closed system. God has created our world and he inhabits it in ways that are that we really can't even understand and we can't even comprehend. Think of our world, the whole galaxy, all of the solar systems, right? Think of it as porous. It's not closed off, it's porous. And God interacts and that's what providence is. God works in it and through it and around it. And when we read today's scripture, we're really confronted with this. And I'm just going to say, we're confronted and challenged by the Bible's deeply supernatural worldview. The Bible says we are not living in a closed system, that there's more going on in our world than meets the eye. And indeed, there is an entirely unseen realm where spiritual battles are taking place. Now, I understand this is, for some of us and some of this, it's going to seem really far-fetched. And you don't believe in angels and you don't believe in demons. You don't believe in the supernatural. But let me ask you, how then do you make sense of evil? How do you make sense of the child rapist, the jihadist, and genocidal regimes that seek to annihilate entire people groups. How do you make sense of that? Well, these things happen because these people lack a good, you know, liberal arts education. I didn't think I was going to get a laugh, actually. I think many of us, like, believe that. We, we see stuff going on in the Middle East, and we say, oh, if they just had a a better education, right? If they just had a better education and they could understand us a little bit better. They would understand that we're not the infidel, right? Or we're not, right, or whatever. But, the, you know, history tells us that's not the case, right? The Nazis were one of the most educated countries in the world when they exterminated six million Jews. And they also had a very naturalistic worldview. Not only that, but have you ever felt the presence of evil? Not long ago, a few years ago, a few of us were called into a room of a person who had succumbed to an overdose of drugs and I've never felt the presence of evil in a more real way. Death hung in the air. It was, it was scary. Have you ever felt the presence of darkness in your own soul? Or seen it in the soul of another? The science cannot explain evil. 
And every time something evil happens in our world, what do all the newscasters say? What does the media say? What does your Facebook feed say? It says this, how can this happen? Why is this happening? How could a person who grows up in our country do something, something like this? Sorry, I can hear that. It's really annoying me. I know it's probably annoying you too. Dang. Give me a second here. Hopefully that's going to change it. I don't know if it will or not. Well, let me tell you, I don't think science has the answer. I don't think naturalism has an answer. Evolution doesn't, you know, you t- trace things back evolutionary in, in evolutionary principles. Clearly it doesn't have an answer because their answer is like survival of the fittest, right? So why should we stop killing if it got us to where we are? Why should we stop dominating the weak if we, you know, got here because of it? But I think Christianity has a unique answer. But you might not like it. I'm pre- I'll, let me preface it with that. It goes completely against this naturalist worldview that we kind of are inundated with, that we're, the air that we're breathing in a day in and day out basis. Why is there real evil in our world? There is real evil in our world because there was a rebellion in another world. Now let me explain. Genesis 1 tells us that God created everything in the world and it was good. But it wasn't like it is now. So when you think of creating the world, the Garden of Eden wasn't like it is right now. The Garden of Eden was a deeply supernatural world. God created angels before he created men. Now an angel... Here's what Wayne Grudem in Systematic Theology, here's how he defines angels. Angels are created spiritual beings with moral judgment and high intelligence, but without physical bodies. So angels are spirits. They are divine messengers. They are highly intelligent. Um, They can do things, but they don't have physical bodies. And angels were created before human beings. But sometimes, sometime between Genesis 1.31 And Genesis 3.1, Scripture tells us there was some kind of angelic coup. Angels turned against God, and in doing so, became evil. 2 Peter 2.4 says this, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment... And then Jude 6 says this, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, God has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. What's it saying? Angels rebelled against God and God punished them. These angels sinned. They did not stay within their own position of authority And so God judged them for their rebellion and they became demons or evil spirits. These angels were led in their rebellion by Satan. Satan is the personal name of the leader of the evil spirits. The Bible uses other names as well. The devil, the serpent, the dragon, Beelzebul, the ruler of this world, the prince of the power of the air, or the evil one. Satan was the originator of evil. He was the serpent in the garden. See, many of us think that the serpent, you know, like snakes didn't just talk in the garden, right? It wasn't like a talking petting zoo when, when God created, everything could talk. Satan was a spiritual being who took the form of a snake in the garden. The New Testament says that Satan was a murderer from the beginning, that he is a liar and the father of lies. John 10.10, he's called the thief who comes only to steal, to kill, and destroy. And so here we have it. Evil exists because Satan exists. Demons exist. And demons oppose and try to destroy every work of God. Let me quote Theologian Wayne Grudem again. 
Just as Satan tempted Eve to sin against God, so he tried to get Jesus to sin and thus fail in his mission as Messiah. The tactics of Satan and his demons are to use lies, deception, murder, and every other kind of destructive activity to attempt to cause people to turn away from God and destroy themselves. Demons will try every tactic to blind people to the gospel and keep them in bondage to things that hinder them from coming to God. They will also try to use temptation, doubt, guilt, fear, confusion, sickness, envy, pride, slander, or any other means possible to hinder a Christian's witness and usefulness. Now, do we really believe that? Or are we more likely to take the naturalist position that everything in our world has a natural cause and we live in a closed system and our, in, our decisions aren't influenced by anything demonic? See, the Bible says that there is a supernatural battle going on and it's going on in the earth and it's going on in our own heart. And when I look around, when I look around at the world that we live in, and I look even into my own heart, to me, it makes sense. The warfare mentality makes sense of the world that I see it. I don't see people just naturally getting along. I don't see people naturally embracing people that are different from them. I instead see people loving to make these little enclaves and getting around people who are like them and kind of demonizing people who aren't like them. Have we ever had a more polarizing election cycle? Ever. And the other side, they're not just wrong. They're demonic. They're wanting to destroy America. That's the language that we use. The other candidate hates America. See, we, de we don't have demons anymore, but we demonize people. See, I find this to be an accurate depiction of our world, even though I don't, nor have I ever seen an angel or a demon that I'm aware of. My mom said I was one, but I don't believe it. <laughs> we are living in a war zone that is haunted. Haunted by God, haunted by angels, haunted by demons. And they are at war with one another. Now you might be asking, why, why did God even create Satan if he knew that he was going to re rebel and start this war? See, this rebellion is not a surprise to God. He literally wrote it into the script. Why? Why allow this evil into the world at all? Well, evidently, God knew that the presence of evil could actually bring about more joy and more goodness than if it had never existed. Let me explain that real quick. The annihilation of everything evil and the redemption of everything broken would show his glory in a way that we could never know if it had never existed in the first place. So that's where we are right now. We are living in a war-torn world and there are no safe zones. There are no peace treaties. And here's the troubling thing. And there are no non-combatants. In fact, the Bible says that all of us, even those sweet little babes in the nursery, are born into this battle Something inside of us as at enmity with God, enemies of God. Romans 5.10, Colossians 1.21 both say we were God's enemies or we are God's enemies because of our rebellion. And the only hope for us, the only hope for mankind is for God to intervene and draft us into his army by his grace. Now, if that seems fair to you, or that might not seem fair to you, that doesn't seem fair, 
Let me ask you, do you really want God to be fair? Because the angels got the fairness of God. When they rebelled from him, when they sinned, there was no redemption for any angelic being. When the angels rebelled, what did they get? Judgment, immediate, bound, destined for hell. That's, that's God being fair. That's a king being fair. When somebody tries to usurp his authority, he smashes the rebellion. That's fair. So do we, as human beings, really want God? Do we really want to say, God, I want fairness? Now, this is a great moment, parents, a teaching moment for your kids. My kids, if you ask them, like, when they start arguing, that's not fair. Let's talk about what's fair. You breathing right now? What, if, if we were just, if God was fair, what would you get? All right? Hell. All right, then. Everything else is a gift of grace. So let me ask you, really, have you, where are you at in this war? Where are you at in this war? Have you rebelled from your creator? Have you sinned against this God? Because theologian R.C. Sproul says, all sin is cosmic treason. It's cosmic treason against God that is worthy of death and hell forever if God was only fair. So if God was only fair, you would be toast. I would be toast. If God is only fair, there's no hope for mankind because, of course, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all rebelled. But Exodus shows us that God is more than fair. He's redemptive. But it's important for us to understand, sometimes we get so used to some of these words, it's so important for us to realize redemption only happens inside the context of judgment. Redemption only makes sense with a backdrop of justice and judgment. Think about it this way. God's judgment on sin and sinners is the black backdrop that causes the shining star of redemption to stand out the clearer. Redemption is only sweet when judgment is certain. Redemption is only sweet when judgment is certain. Somebody knocks on your door and they say, listen, you've been saved. No, you don't open the door. That's what happens, right? You see this person? They might be in a short sleeve white shirt with a... No. <laughs> you don't open the door, right? What? You've been saved. You're safe. Don't worry anymore. Don't worry. You're safe. Everybody looks at him and goes, go to the next house. Why? You don't have any idea what he's talking about. But what if the context is you don't know and there's a tornado bearing down on your house? What if the context is there's a tornado on its way and it's going to consume you and destroy you and, and it just barely, let's just say it barely missed you, it was turned away and somebody comes and says, don't worry, you're safe. Now it makes sense. Oh, thank God I'm safe. Why? Judgment was certain, right? Ju- something, was a, something was about to destroy you, is bearing down on you and you've been saved from it. This is why redemption only makes sense. If you only teach your children, Jesus loves you, this I know, they'll never understand redemption. They need to understand the justice. They need to understand that judgment, when judgment is certain, redemption is sweet. Now I say all that to say this. Everyone who knows God, everyone who gets born again, everyone who gets saved, gets saved from judgment. Salvation always and only comes through judgment. And both judgment, this is going to be hard to get around your head around maybe, both judgment and salvation and redemption from judgment bring God glory. Both judgment on evil and redemption from evil bring God glory. 
And if that person, let me see. So everyone who gets saved gets saved through judgment. But if a person does not get saved, does not embrace Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, listen, that person is still under judgment. The world is not, no, mankind as a whole is not free from judgment because Jesus Christ died and was resurrected. Jesus himself, this is what Jesus says in John 3, 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see see life. Listen, but the wrath of God remains on him. Remains. It's on mankind, and the only way it's removed is because it's placed upon Jesus through profession of faith, repentance of sins. And that's what, exactly kind of what we're going to see in our text today. So let's jump in. Exodus 7, verse 1. Listen, this, this sermon is building on the last few weeks, so if you haven't listened to the last couple of weeks, you need to because I can't re-preach those sermons. I don't have the time. So you can listen to them on the podcast or on YouTube, the video if you want to watch it. Let's go to chapter 7, verse 1. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of this land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Okay. Now, Exodus tells us, we we see Moses' heart mentioned five times in this chapter. We see it mentioned in chapter five. We've seen it mentioned several times already. It's going to be mentioned more times over and over. Pharaoh's heart is a key piece to understanding the Exodus. And overall, we're told three things about the heart of Pharaoh. One, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Two, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Just says Pharaoh's heart was hard or heavy or weighty. It was dense. Wouldn't receive the word of God. And three, we're told, Pharaoh hardened his own heart willfully. And so the biblical picture here is that God is sovereign. God is in control. But mankind's choices still have meaning. They still matter. Is God hardening Pharaoh's heart? Yes. Is Pharaoh hardening his own heart? Yes. Is Pharaoh's heart hard? Yes. And it does, and there is this progression. Now let me hear that. This is one of, we need to have this healthy understanding of what sin does. When you rebel from your creator, dysfunction, you're entering into dysfunction. You're entering into discreation. You're becoming hard. What happens to an apple? You pull it off, right? You sit it on the side. It starts break apart, come apart, right? Just starts rotting. That's what happens to human beings apart from God. Okay, think of a bread, right? You sit bread on a counter. If it's not from McDonald's, that thing will get hard eventually. <laughs> right? That's what your heart does when it's disconnected, when you push away from God and you begin to worship other things, your heart gets hard. Now, this is the scary part. There's this constant hardening, going back to God in repentance, softening. Hardening, going back to God in repentance, softening. This is why we need discipline. This is what it means to be a disciple. This is why we read the Bible. We're brought back to the word of God and we're repented and we're made soft again. That's why we need community to speak into our life. Okay? But this is what happens when you push away from God and you stay pushed away from God and you keep following your own ways. There becomes a moment in time where your heart is hardened, period. Unredeemable. Your days are over. Redemption not possible. Now we don't, looking at things, I can't see that. I don't know when that happens. But God, when God says Pharaoh's heart is hardened, it's over for him. There's no hope for redemption. Judgment is coming and judgment is certain. And so this should be a warning for all of us who play with sin. Who get comfortable and it's not that big of a deal. Everybody does it. I'm not as bad as my neighbor or my boss or whoever it is. Beware the deceitfulness of sin. This is the natural progression of the human heart apart from God's 
redemption, God's interaction, God entering into our world and stopping the heart's hardening process. Let's keep reading. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Can I see this? Or can you guys just hear this? There's this kind of naturalist understanding of the Bible. If God would just show up to me, I would believe. If God would turn the Mississippi River into blood, I would believe. No, it's not. No one is proved. No one, no one comes to God just by natural signs. You need a heart change. Pharaoh, he's going to see the miraculous and he refuses to believe. Now listen, Pharaoh wasn't an atheist. Pharaoh wasn't, you know, he didn't have a 21st century worldview that had a naturalist explanation for it. He was a polytheist. He believed in a lot of gods and we're going to see that coming up. He believed in a lot of gods. He even believed he, he was one of them, right? And so he's like, who is the Lord? Nah, I don't, I don't know that guy. I trust in my gods. All right, let's keep reading. Let's keep reading. Pharaoh will not listen to you then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of what? Judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them, what's he saying? And we don't like this word, word, judgment. He's saying the Egyptians shall know that I'm the Lord, that I'm Yahweh. And in, in chapter 9, ahead of the game here, verse 16, listen what God says to Pharaoh. Listen, listen. For this purpose, I have raised you up. To, to, he's, God is speaking this to Pharaoh. For this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power. So that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. God has raised Pharaoh up, hardened his heart, and is about to judge him so that the name of Yahweh will be praised in all the world. He wants the world to see his love for his people and his power to save them, and the only way for them to see that is through the judgment of Pharaoh and the judgment of Egypt. And indeed, that is exactly what happens. There's hundreds, from this point on, there'll be hundreds of references to the Exodus Throughout the, throughout the Bible, throughout the scripture. It is the, um, how do I want to say it? It's, 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 it's the form of redemption that will always be pointed back to when God is working redemptively in his creation. He's going to say, remember the Exodus. Take a look at the Exodus. Don't forget the Exodus. Don't forget that God is the one who brings you out of Egypt. It's going to be used over and over and over as a teaching point for the next several hundreds of years. It's the prerequisite of the redemption brought in the gospel by Jesus. But this is what's interesting. There's more going on here than the judgment of Egypt. I want you to be clear. I want to be clear that God is not looking down and, and saying, I hate Egypt. Those Egyptians, I'm, I'm going to get them. And you know what, Israel, they're my, they're my good old boys and good old girls. It's not what God, that's not what God's doing. This is this is his electing grace. He's choosing Israel, not because they're any better, but look what, look what God is specifically going after here. That's what it says in Exodus 12 and Numbers 33. God says this, I will execute judgment on all the gods of Egypt. God is doing these works in Egypt, not just because Egypt is evil and Pharaoh is evil, but because their gods are evil. He's going after their false gods. And that needs to, we need to think about that, right? This supernatural worldview, that their gods that they worshiped aren't just little trinkets that don't have any existence. They're actually demonic. They're actually evil. And we need to understand this before you say, oh man, start feeling sorry for good old Pharaoh. God is at war here and he isn't just at war with Pharaoh in Egypt. He's at war with the demons and the demigods they are worshiping. All the false gods of Egypt are coming under the just judgment of the true God, Yahweh. 
Now, it's widely known that ancient Egypt had all kind of gods. One of the commentaries that I read this week said that they had as many as 80 different gods. Now, us looking back, we really we think, how silly, right? Like, how archaic, how uneducated. Thinking that, you know, all, everything was, you know, different gods and they worshiped all these different gods. But if you were here last week, you saw that everyone worships. We all worship something. We see something as beautiful. We dedicate ourselves to it and we make sacrifices to it. That's what worship is. And so many of us worship our job and many of us worship our spouse. And many of us worship kids and many of us worship sex and many of us worship money. And I can't preach that whole sermon again, but you need to go back and listen to it if you need to. But this is what God's showing us here. God isn't okay with just getting his people out of a bad situation. Please hear me. How many of us pray for God to get us out of whatever problem we're in right now? Just get me out. God's not okay with just getting people out. He wants to deliver them from the worship of false gods who are demonic. This is spiritual as much as it is physical. He is going in the next few chapters, to destroy and humiliate all the false gods of Egypt. And if the people refuse to repent and walk away from those false gods, they're going to be judged and destroyed along with them, just like the angels were in the garden. This is a war. This is a war for worship. This is a war between the gods. And God has drawn a line in the sand. He's drawn up his battle lines and people must choose whose side they will be on. And what we're going to see here is that God is declaring him to be far and above all other gods. And if you worship anything other than him, you will be judged. So the 10 plagues that we're going to see over the next few weeks, they're actually just God lining up Egypt's false gods and knocking them down one by one. In fact, the 10 plagues, the nine plagues, however you see it, they're actually 11, they're not really plagues, they're signs and miracles from God as to why he is far above all gods and deserves all of our worship. And so let me just say this. If someone speaks into your life, or if you're in a sermon, sitting under a sermon like this, and God brings conviction of sin, and you begin to see that something, in your heart is worshiping a false god. Don't take a naturalist perspective and go, oh, well, you know, there's worse things to worship. At least I'm not a drug addict. I don't beat my wife. So if I'm going to be worshiping something, might as well be success. That's a naturalist perspective. You don't understand that your love of money is demonic that Satan is trying to use it to destroy your soul. He wants to steal and kill and destroy you and your family. Demonic. Your worship of your kids, their gifts of God, your worship of your kids, demonic. He wants to use them to destroy your soul and maybe even destroy them in the process. They're False gods are demonically inspired. Now listen, I know some of you are like, whoa, what in the world are we doing here? Demons and all this stuff. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I don't believe demons are, I don't think, oh, I got a headache. Don't take an aspirin. Better cast out a demon. Like, I, that's not what I'm saying. There's a, de- you know, we reject science and only believe in supernatural. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying why do you think you're so attracted to success? Like the thought of just, you know, making ends meet and living out in the country somewhere and just with your family and worshiping God and and just being kind of a normal person. Why is that so repulsive to you? Right? Like there's something powerfully, supernaturally at work in your heart and you must kind of realize it. Like, you must see that this is dangerous. Like, in a sense, like, I'm over here, I think this is just fun little, you know, rubber ball I'm playing with. If I realized that it was plutonium, 
right? I realized this thing could cause cancer to me. This thing, if I realized it had some danger, I might set it down. I might be a little wary of picking it back up again. We trivialize sometimes our idol worship. When Jesus clearly says, man cannot serve both God and money. If, I'm just going to say it. If, you're a, if you say you worship God and you look at your bank statement and you spent more on coffee this year than you've given to the church, you're worshiping a false God. We don't talk about money often, but we need to because many of you serve it. And you think that's demonic. That's demonic. Scary. This is why God lines up, Jesus lines up, man cannot serve both God and money. That's why Jesus sits down across from the giving box and watches who gives sometimes. Scary thought, but that's what he does. This is why he says it's better to give than to receive. That's why he says it's a pulse. You're putting your finger on the, your pulse of your spiritual life when you look at your money, that your money flows to what you worship. Don't tell me that you love Jesus and, and that you're worshiping God and you serve only him and then you look at your bank statement and all your money flows to everything else but him. You're lying to yourself and you're worshiping a false God. And, many, and we don't want to hear it. I don't want to preach it. We don't talk about it very often. Well, we need to say it. You need to put that finger on your spiritual pulse sometimes. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus taught us this. If you get mad at me, you're mad at Jesus. And so what we're seeing God do right here, listen, God is going to go to war with their idols. Things that they've worshipped their whole life. God's attacking them. And so we should expect God to do the same thing to us, even in our culture that we live in. Many of us have been so attached to a political party, and God in his grace is attacking both of them right now. Verse eight, we gotta go. Man, I gotta go. I gotta go, gotta go. Verse eight, then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourself by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff, cast it down before Pharaoh, and then he become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Miracle. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same thing by their secret arts. Okay, first off, this is a battle here. I know when you watch Prince of Egypt, you know, the bad guys just kind of do a like sleight of hand trick, but that's not what the Bible t teaches here. The Bible teaches God did a miracle, Satan did a miracle. Whoa. And Pharaoh goes, big deal. Now, Pharaoh must have not paid attention because snake, snakes, this snake gobbles up the other snakes. I'm like, that's an exclamation point right there, right? Aaron's staff eats, swallows them up, swallows up all the other ones. Now, what is going on here? This, Egypt had a temple where they worshiped the snake goddess Wajet, who is represented by the hieroglyphic sign of the cobra, and Pharaoh himself wore a serpent crusted diet. He wore the big thing around his head. He had a serpent crusted diadem that symbolized all the power, sovereignty, and magic with which the gods endued the king. Listen to what Pharaoh said when he first ascended the throne. This is kind of his, um, his ceremony when he's taking the throne. This is what he says. Listen, O great one, O magician, O fiery snake, let there be terror of me like the terror of thee. Let there be fear of me like the fear of thee. Let there be awe of me like the awe of thee. Let me rule, a leader of the living. Let me be powerful, a leader of spirits. See, with these words, Pharaoh is offering his soul to the devil. And God says, oh, you like snakes? Wham! 
throws his down. They go, oh, no big deal. They throw theirs down, and he swallows it up. God is showing his power far surpasses. His power swallows the demonic power against him. Let's keep reading. Verse 12. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's, Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord. You got gods? I got gods. I don't see no difference. Verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart, look, is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he's going out to the water. Now, this is interesting. Pharaoh has his little morning devotion planned. He's going out to his, to his God of the Nile in the morning. There's at least three gods that we know of represented by the Nile. And he's going out for his morning devotions to his God of the Nile. They would pray to the Nile. The Nile was, um, it was really their source of security. It was their financial it's what they relied on to make them uh, financially prosperous. Every spring, the spring rains would come and the Nile would flood its banks and the, the, the uh, sediment from the river would spread across and create beautiful and brilliant topsoil for Egypt where they could plant. And so their whole economy was based in and around the Nile. And God says, okay, I want you to go and confront this economic God of Egypt in the morning, when he's going out to worship. He's going out to the water, stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him. And take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent, and you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far, you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I'm the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die. The Nile will stink and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. Now listen, some naturalists that kind of want to impose their interpretation on the scriptures, they go and say, oh, and this is, let me just, pump, let me just say a little something, something here. There's this thing that people call in America a crimson tide. Okay? Now I'm just to say, Crimson Tide, though it is a mascot for the greatest football team in the land, a Crimson Tide is actually this red algae that, that, that collects itself in, in the water and anything it touches, it kills. That's what a Crimson, so you, you see the tide coming in, it's Crimson, it's this red algae that kills things. There's some naturalists that look back and go, oh, the water didn't really turn to blood, it was just this red algae that killed everything. And then you kind of see this naturalist progression because it killed everything. Then the frogs came, then the gnats came. But that's not what the Bible says. As much as I kind of don't mind that, you know, this crimson tide idea, it's actually the water supernaturally turns to blood and kills everything in it. God crushes their demon. God crushes their false god. And everything they look to they look to this God to give them food, to give them water, to give them sustenance, to give them economic security. It's all gone. It's taken from them in a moment for a week. This is, this is like God just closing our borders and not allowing any like foreign oil into our country. Many of you have been around enough to have to live through some shortages and to know the lines at the gas station and the trucking and the shipping and, and everything in commerce just kind of closes down and collapses on itself. That's what's going on here in Egypt. Now let's keep reading. Verse 19, and the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff, stretch out your hand in the waters of Egypt over the rivers, their canals, their ponds, and all the pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in the vessels of wood and the vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned to blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank. 
so the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. Look at this. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by the secret arts. Now, we don't really know how they did this. Talking about a bowl or something, they turned, they turned it into blood, cup, I don't know. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. But Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians, look at this, dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. You see them still going to their false god and they're digging with their own. Their god can't produce it, so their own effort must make up for it. These false idols never fail to fail us. We talked about last week. Now, as I'm closing here, I really want us to see two things from this text. First, we live in an open system. We live in an open world that is haunted by God and the supernatural is real. And we don't, as Paul says later, we don't battle against flesh and blood. We are not at, at war with Islam. We are not at war with atheists. We are not at war with naturalists. We are at war with Satan and the demonic and the evil spirits. That's what we war against, not flesh and blood. Our battle is that Satan and these evil spirits tempt us to worship them in whatever modern garb they present themselves in. Money, success, comfort, power, and we must turn from these idols, repent of our false worship to them, and ask God to soften our heart before it is too late. We must worship the real God. That's the first thing I want you to see. Second, I also want us to see that God, he was supernaturally working here through Moses and Aaron. But he was going to do something. And now, indeed, from our perspective, he has done something Far greater. See, our world isn't just God haunted. God himself has actually climbed into this world through the supernatural impregnation of a teenage girl over 2,000 years ago. He's entered into it. A spirit put on flesh and entered into this world and walked our streets. And a miracle of God the second member of the triune God, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God of true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, Jesus, the Spirit of the Son of God, enters into the womb of Mary and becomes a living being, encased in a physical body like us. This is supernatural. Christianity is truly supernatural. The super enters into the natural. But why did he do it? Well, 1 John 3 tells us the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And Jesus did just that by living a sinless life and then allowing himself to be crucified in our place for our sins. See, there is no redemption without judgment. No one's sins go unpunished. Either we bear the judgment or we put our faith in one who bore the judgment for us, namely Jesus Christ, the perfect son of God. The miracle of Christianity is that Jesus takes the punishment that we deserve. The cost of our rebellion, our betrayal, our treason goes on Jesus. Jesus pays it. Just as Moses' staff swallowed up 
all the other snakes, so Jesus' death and resurrection swallows up all the power of the enemy of death, hell, and the grave for the believer. The question for us this morning is, will we believe it? Or will we harden our hearts like Pharaoh? See, Jesus shows us the only God, listen, the only God who doesn't just dish out judgment, but takes judgment. Every other God, even Buddhism, eventually, Buddhism is basically, you know, you have, if you don't live enough good, you're good enough life, you get reincarnated, right? That's, that's a terrible judgment. It's all based on your, like, what am I? What am I going to be? And I joke, but like, you know, you, you can get, get kind of funny with that, but I probably shouldn't. You come back as something really bad, and then you got a chance, well, I was a pretty good giraffe, I'm going to come back as something else. But that's judgment, judgment, judgment. And it's Christianity is the only religion whose God doesn't just dish out judgment, but also takes it, bears the judgment. He loved us even when we were his enemies, so much so that he took the judgment that we deserve. When you see that, and you believe that, it gives you this supernatural kind of worldview that changes you at your core. It softens you and it hardens you. It, it softens your heart, and yet it, it puts steel in your spine. It radically changes you at your core. You're less judgmental about those people but you're also more willing to come alongside and stand up to the unjust treatment of others. You're more humble, and yet you're still, you're more bold in your proclamation of the gospel. This is what the real gospel does when it gets into us, when we see that I deserve judgment, but Christ took the judgment for me. It frees me, it changes me. Now listen, I wanna wanna share a story of where this has kind of radically happened. In the 18th century, this guy named William Cowper, he was elected um, to the House of Lords, uh, and he was going to be the clerk to the journal of the House of Lords, and it required him to give this verbal um, or public examination in the House before beginning his duties. And this guy hated public speaking. And it caused him if you read it, like it caused him to go, I mean, the, the old term was to go mad. He went mad. He went crazy. He lost his mind. And he, was, he went to commit suicide in, like, in several different ways. He tried to commit suicide before having to speak in front of this, the, the House of Lords. And he was overwhelmed. And he, I mean, he tried all these different things and he kept feeling like the Lord stopped him from doing these things. And then he woke up the next morning and he had this weight he felt this evil on him that he was trying to kill himself. And it's so shocking how in his dark, kind of there's this evil presence and there's this demonic oppression and he loses his mind for a little while and he tries to kill himself and that in the morning, this light kind of speaks into his darkness And what does it say? It's so interesting. He writes this poem, or he writes this hymn. I want to show it. If you've got the first verse, let's show it here. Many of you are going to know it. It's called, There's a Fountain Filled with Blood. And he says, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. There's another river flowing. There's another river of blood. This one comes from Emmanuel's vein. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. See, why does this this blood flow from this river of Emmanuel's veins? Because he took the judgment that we deserve. And so when guilty sinners are plunged underneath this blood, they lose all their guilty stains. Jesus took their punishment. Jesus took their judgment. Skip down. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. 
and there have I, though vile as he, washed all my sins away. Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. Let's go to the next one. Ever since by faith I saw the stream thy flowing wounds supply, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. And in a nobler, sweeter song, I'll sing thy power to save when this poor, lisping, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave. Look, he's so afraid of public speaking. See that? This poor, lisping, stammering tongue lies silent. And what's his great hope? Lord, I believe thou, thou hast prepared, unworthy though I be, for me a blood-bought free reward, a golden harp for me. What's he talking about? Worship in the new heavens and the new earth this dark moment that he he feels so unworthy, he's going to take his own life. And in this moment, God speaks a word of grace. God speaks of his redemptive love, and he writes that hymn. One of the greatest hymns. 250 years later, we still sing that hymn. And that is the offer that comes through the river of blood that pours from Emmanuel's vein, but it's only ours by faith. My, My question to you this morning is, will you believe it. Let me pray. Father, there's so many things as we read your word that confronts the worldview that we possess, the way that we see the world. I pray that you would speak to your people, that you would soften our hearts, that you would give us eyes to see and faith to believe, and that we would rejoice with William Cowper that though we were enemies, now we're sons and daughters, but only through the judgment that came on your son. We are redeemed and we have power to fight our sin, power to turn from our false gods, and we have hope for the future that one day soon we'll be free from sinning. The battle will be over and the king will be on the throne and Satan and all the demons will be in hell where they belong under the just judgment of a righteous, holy God. And we will sing your praises and live in your grace and worship at your throne with not a stain of sin. And God, we remember that and we participate in that as we come to the Lord's table this morning, as we take the body that was broken for us and the blood that was shed for us and we eat them and we drink them and we take them into ourselves. Thank you for the judgment that you received on our behalf. You were broken and your blood was shed. And because of that, there is redemption for broken sinners like us. You are our hope. The King who was crucified. Let us eat with faith this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.